Good morning. Today's reading is Acts chapter 16, beginning at verse 6. Paul and his companions travelled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, Come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. From Troas we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day on to Neapolis. From there we travelled to Philippi, a Roman colony and a leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptised, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Once, when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so troubled that he turned round and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. When the owners of the slave girl realised that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas. And the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison. And the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up 
And when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his family were baptised. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God. He and his whole family. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens, and threw us into prison. And now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No. Let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and encouraged them. Then they left. We praise you, our Father, that the Lord Jesus is at your right hand and is taking news of himself to the ends of the earth. And we pray, our Father, as we reflect on that work in Philippi this morning, that, Father, you would encourage our hearts and give us confidence, we pray, in the Lord Jesus' work. For his, in his name we pray. Amen. Well, one of the biggest concepts or buzzwords over the last few years has been this idea of resilience. Resilience. Uh, resilience is that ability to bounce back, to kind of roll with the punches. Often, uh, resilience is spoken about in context of my generation, uh, the 20s and 30s, uh, who some people, perhaps unfairly, have called the snowflake generation. It's an interesting metaphor because I actually think snowflakes are pretty resilient. Uh, just think to every winter and the travel chaos that happens when those white flakes fall from the sky. But the point is that uh, we, as a generation, need to learn, people say, resilience. Uh, to have a healthy uh, lifestyle, is, uh, we need to be able to keep going despite the setbacks. This morning, I want us to see a new concept here, and it's this idea of gospel resilience. I want us to think, how able are we to see the gospel as true, as powerful, 
as urgent when we encounter setbacks. Because I don't know about you, but it is very easy, isn't it, to be knocked back when we encounter setbacks. Perhaps we've been praying for a friend or a child for years that they would become a Christian. And it feels like our prayers haven't been answered. And then we wonder, is the gospel really powerful? Or perhaps we decide to be more open about our faith at work or uh, with our family, and then we're insulted, and then we think to ourselves, is the gospel really that persuasive? And we lose our sense of confidence in it. Not that we stop believing it for ourselves, but we find it difficult to remain convinced that others can come to believe it. And we start speaking about our culture, don't we, as kind of post-Christian, post-gospel, as kind of gone beyond the pale, and then we're here, kind of the last people uh, at the party, the kind of remnant of Christians in uh, this part of the world. But this chapter, I'm convinced, shows us why and how we can develop gospel resilience, that if you and me are not, um, encounter setbacks, that we're not going to be knocked off course. Because in this chapter, Paul and Silas encounter many, many setbacks. Um, I don't know if you notice at the beginning of the passage, they're really constrained in their mission. It feels like the gospel is not going to go out. But look where they are at the end of the passage. They're in Philippi. There have been three people encountering the Lord Jesus, and the church has started on the continent of Europe. And Luke shows us, I think, in this chapter, what authentic ministry looks like, what the experience of us Um, taking the gospel out to the world will be like. And I think we see three things. I think we see that Jesus will build his church through surprising turns, through surprising uh, surprising responses, and with surprising people. See, first of all, uh, Jesus builds his church through surprising turns. Because I don't know if you noticed, but the, the church in Philippi emerges out of some significant setbacks. Uh, just to bring us up to speed, we find ourselves now on Paul's second missionary journey. And he starts that missionary journey by going to the, the places where he's planted churches in the first missionary journey. I've got a map here on the, the screen. I don't know if that makes any sense. Uh, but you'll see, uh, it's just taken a bit of time to warm up. Uh, you'll see um, just over on the right hand side here, you've got Tarsus, Derby, uh, Lystra, Iconium. That's where the churches were planted in the first uh, journey. Uh, And so he goes back up through Syria, uh, takes a left, and uh, goes back through those places, trying to build up the churches. But as you might imagine, Paul's mind turns to those people yet to hear of the gospel. And if you look where he is, um, he's up at Antioch, in um, Pisidian Antioch, his mind goes left to Asia. uh, And those people uh, are hearing uh, the gospel. Uh, it's, the, it's what we call Turkey today. But Jesus, it seems, has got other plans. Have a look at verse 6 in chapter 16. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phygra and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. Do you notice what he says? He says they were kept from preaching. Now, we don't know precisely how that happened, whether it was some vision, some kind of physical setback. But the big point is they faced a closed door. And notice who it is who's doing the closing. It's the Holy Spirit. It's God himself saying no. 
And so Paul's mind turns, um, oh, map's disappeared, uh, there it is again. Uh, Paul's mind turns, he can't go to Asia, but his mind turns to Bithynia there in the north, in the middle of the map. But look what happens in verse 7. When they came to the, um, the, the border at uh, Mysa, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. See, again, it's the Holy Spirit, isn't it? What Luke calls the Spirit of Jesus. He closes the door on these regions. Now, this doesn't mean that those people in those regions never heard the gospel. Thanks for the map. Um, People do go to proclaim there. But at this point, God is closing the door for Paul and Silas. And just imagine, just imagine for a second what that would have meant for Paul. His whole life since his Damascus Road experience has been about making Jesus known. And here it seems that Jesus is saying, no, there's a closed door. You'll remember in 1990, uh, some of us will, uh, you'll remember in 1990 the World Cup and uh, England get into the semi-final. And you'll remember Paul Gascoigne's tears uh, because he w- received a second yellow in that, uh, that match, which meant that he would miss the World Cup final. Now, it turned out that he didn't need to worry about that in the end. But uh, we felt his pain, didn't we? We saw the tears of sadness. Because if you're a footballer, there is no bigger stage than playing in the World Cup final. And yet, Paul Gascoigne found that door closed for him, and he cried on a pitch in front of millions of people. And here's Paul, seeking to make the gospel known, and the door is closed. Now, why on earth would God close the door? Surely, people need to hear the gospel everywhere, Well, Jesus closes one door, but he opens another. So you notice Paul gets a vision in verse 9, and in verse 10, now with Luke, um, he turns from uh, them to we, uh, we read verse 10, after Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Do you see, Jesus closes the door in Asia, in Bithynia, but he opens the door in Europe. Now, of course, they didn't know Europe quite as we know Europe today, but this really is the beginning of the gospel on our continent. What seemed like a setback was actually an opening. What seemed like a closed door was actually the way that the gospel went out to Europe and in some ways over the centuries to the whole world. It's so easy, isn't it? I don't know about you, but just think that God has to kind of work to our plans so easy to think, oh, I know what God's kind of got mapped out for me here. I know how things are going to go. And then when it doesn't, when the prayers don't get answered, when the plans don't come together, when the doors close, we can be knocked off course. We think something has gone wrong. God's mistaken. Or we start to doubt the gospel. But the thing is, Jesus has promised to build his church. He just hasn't shared the blueprints with us. And because Jesus has closed one door doesn't mean he can't open another. There's an author called uh, Pearson, and uh, he writes about some of the most famous missionaries in history. And uh, he points out that most of them actually took a, a massive detour to what they planned their whole lives. He writes this, Livingston tried to go to China, but God sent him to Africa instead. Carey planned to go to Polynesia, but God guided him to India. Judson went to India first, but was driven on to Burma. And he writes this, we too, in our day, 
need to trust God for guidance and rejoice equally in his restraints as well as his constraints. See, maybe our prayers don't get answered. Maybe uh, life doesn't go in the way we expect. But maybe in another way it will. See, our job is not to second-guess how Jesus is going to build his church. It's to trust that he will. But it's not just the surprising turns we see in this chapter. We see that Paul and Silas encounter uh, a surprising response, and yet again they demonstrate this gospel resilience. Now, we'll come back to Lydia in a moment, but uh, notice when they get to Philippi, they're accompanied by a very strange public address system. They meet a slave girl in verse 17. Uh, We read, this girl followed Paul uh, and and the rest of us, shouting, and I love the way Mike did this, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. Now, what she says is true to an extent, but it seems that this was unhelpful publicity, because I guess that as Paul and Silas were trying to explain the gospel, that it seemed like what they were talking about was connected with the occult or some uh, idols that she was uh, caught up in. And so Paul prays that the Spirit would come out of her, and it does. But it provokes a surprising response. See, you'd think that the freeing of this slave girl from an evil spirit would be a good thing. But it turns out she was a cash cow for her owners. And so rather than Paul and Silas being thanked, they're being flogged. And with their backs still raw from the beating, they're put in prison. They're put in stocks, which were designed to kind of keep your legs apart, uh, to, keep, to ensure you in lots of pain. And they were kept under lock and key. And again, just imagine for a second what this would have meant for Paul. The reason he's in Philippi is so the gospel would go out. And not only that, the reason he's in Philippi is because he's received a vision from God to go and proclaim the gospel there. And now it feels like the gospel is in lockdown. You'll forgive Paul, wouldn't you, for having a little bit of self-pity at this point, for wondering what God's doing. But his response couldn't be any different from that. Look at verse 25 with me. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Do you notice, rather than tears of anguish, there's songs of joy. Why do they react this way? How can they sing when their backs are bleeding? Well, Paul, uh, Luke shows us in what happens next why they have this sort of resilience. See, there's a, there's a prison break that comes next. There's a kind of get-out-of-jail-free card of epic proportions at this point. It comes in the form of an earthquake, and, and as this earthquake hits, the doors open, the chains fall off, and the prisoners are free. And what's good news for the prisoners is actually bad news for the prison guard, because he knows this has happened on his watch, and uh, he knows his head will be demanded, and so he decides to fall on his sword. But we read, didn't we, that Paul stops him, And the jailer says, how can I be saved? And Paul replies with the core message of the gospel, verse 31. They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Before we go on, it's just worth saying at this point, this really is the core of the gospel. 
See, if you're wondering what's the Christian message about, it is verse 31. And notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, right, okay, we've got to get you in church, we've got to get you baptized, we've got to get you looking the part. He doesn't say, well, you need to sort out your lifestyle. What are you doing kind of putting us in stocks like this? Come on, sort it out. And then maybe we'll think about you becoming a Christian. He doesn't even say, well, you need to come on a Christianity Explore course uh, for six weeks and then we'll see where you are. Uh, Not that that's a bad thing. But notice what he does say, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. That moment, the jailer turned, changed his mind about Jesus and decided to follow him was the moment his life changed forever. But notice, it is through the most surprising circumstances this happens, isn't it? I wonder if Paul would have guessed that through a beating, through an imprisonment, would have come this conversion of this man and his family. And it shows us, doesn't it, that what seems like a huge setback for the gospel is actually Jesus' way of ensuring it goes out. And it's that conviction that keeps Paul and Silas going, even when they find themselves in stocks. Paul writes this later, if we can have it on the screen, to the church in Philippi. He writes, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in every and any situation, whether fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or want. And here's what he says. How can he do it? I can do all this through him who gives me strength. It's very easy, isn't it, for our circumstances to go south and to assume that something has gone wrong, to lose our confidence in the gospel. You take it off the screen. Thank you. Perhaps we've decided to speak up at a party and we've got insulted, or perhaps we've damaged relationships because of our faith, and those things, they hurt us, don't they? And then we keep our heads down. But so often, Jesus uses those circumstances to draw others to himself. I shared this a few years ago, but it's worth repeating that um, on summer camp uh, about three or four years ago, we we met a, a leader who gave a, a bit of a testimony of how she became a Christian. And it was as, ab- absolutely remarkable because she had started off by essentially bullying another Christian at university. She, in her words, she made her life hell. And this Christian didn't respond as she would have expected. She didn't fight back. She didn't argue back. She was gracious. And even under immense suffering, she was able to show huge favor to this person. And, and this person was blown away by it. And as she was worse and worse to this Christian, this Christian was more and more gracious. And eventually, she re-examined her whole worldview and became a believer herself. It was absolutely remarkable to hear. And maybe you are struggling today. Maybe the struggle will come in the future. But wherever we are, we need to remember that it is not that Jesus has abandoned us And maybe it is our very response to that adversity that Jesus will use to build his church. There is one last surprise which I want us to look at in this passage, and it is the makeup of this early church. See, Luke does something here that I don't think he does anywhere else in Acts. He gives us three character studies, one after the other, three people who encounter the Lord Jesus. 
Uh, first, we meet Lydia in verse 14. Uh, she's a uh, trader in purple cloth, uh, which is the kind of equivalent of the Gucci or the Louis Vuitton. Uh, I see we're all very familiar with those brands uh, here at St. Mary's. Uh, she was a rich woman. She was in that kind of trade. And uh, we read later that the church met in her house. So this isn't going to be some sort of studio flat. This is more of a kind of mansion. And so here, the first convert in Philippi is a rich, successful businesswoman. And the Lord draws her to himself. But then we meet a slave girl in verse 16, and she's the opposite of Lydia. I mean, she's not even named. And one author writes that she doesn't own a thing, let alone even herself. She's a slave. Now, we're not told she's converted, but where she comes in this narrative seems to suggest she was. And then finally, there's the jailer. Probably not rich, probably not poor, almost certainly Roman, and probably as big as the sort of guys you see on the pub door on a Friday night. And it's these three individuals, all from different parts of the social spectrum, that become the first believers on the continent of Europe. I was, when I was prepping this, I was imagining that first Sunday service at Lydia's house. Can you just imagine it? Her house is decked out with the finest art, uh, those sort of ornaments that you're just nervous of being in the house in case you touch anything. And then suddenly the doorbell goes and this beefy jailer rocks up at the door. Someone she would never cross paths with in any other walk of life. And she opens the door and says, welcome, brother. The doorbell goes again and uh, she opens the door. She looks down and it's this girl. Doesn't seem like she's ever had a haircut. She's got nothing in this world to speak of. She's suffered huge trauma. And she says, welcome, sister. See, Jesus builds his church through hugely surprising people. The church is not monochrome. The gospel has never been about one class, one race, one people, one culture, one nation, one tradition. Jesus draws in all sorts of surprising people from all over the world. And it may just be that you're here this morning and you're listening to this or listening online and you think to yourself, I'm just not the religious type. I'm just not the churchy type of guy. It's not my temperament. Well, if you think that, you're in good company because those are the very types of people that formed the first church. But those of us who are Christians, I, I guess if you're like me, you might have in mind a kind of list of those people who are likely to become Christians. The, the people that look the part, we're happy to explain things to them. But then we walk past a drug addict begging at the top of town, or for that matter, the family enclosed in the, the mansion in rural Hampshire, and then we doubt the gospel is for them. But Jesus draws all sorts of people into his church. Our job is not to sift the guest list, but it's rather to invite all in. See, Jesus will build his church. He will do it through surprising turns, through surprising responses, and with surprising people. And that is how, friends, we build gospel resilience. And it is not by mustering up some stoic strength in ourselves. In fact, that resilience doesn't come from us. It comes from looking to the one who is building his church. And as we've seen today, we remember, don't we, that his ways are not our ways. 
And if we doubt that, we most of all need to look to the cross, because it's at the cross that we see His ways are not our ways. How was it that God redeemed humanity? How was it that God defeated sin and death? How was it that God turned the trajectory of this world from curse so it now looks forward to a new creation? It wasn't through great wisdom or through great acts of power or through successful and beautiful people. It was through the weakness of a Roman cross as the king of the universe laid stretched out on a wooden beam as he breathed his last. See, God worked the most powerful event in human history in the weakest possible way. And he continues to build his church through the very ordinary and through the very surprising ways. See, that's how we build gospel resilience. Not mustering up some strength in ourselves, but looking to our God who works in and through these ways. I want us to take two questions away, perhaps when we're walking in the park later or um, hanging about in the the car park. Why not ask people um, one of these questions? The first question is this. Does our prayer reflect this truth? It's a question I ask myself as I prep this. Do I pray with this sort of confidence, knowing that whatever the circumstance, Jesus is still building his church? And secondly, does our view of the future reflect this? Of course, we're, we're going into a new chapter as a church uh, at the end of this month, and we don't know what that's going to look like uh, the next year, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, but we do know something, and that is Jesus will build his church. And I guess St. Mary's has got lots of twists and turns ahead of it, and we need to have the resilience, don't we, and the confidence as a church to continue his work, whatever the setback. Let's pray. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. We praise you, our Lord Jesus, for your work on the cross and for this great truth that you have done everything necessary to bring us into your people And we do pray, our Lord Jesus, that you would give us great confidence as a church family as we seek to share this truth with those around us. Amen.